You're watching CNN. I'm Allison Kosick in New York, and we begin in Ukraine, where Russian artillery attacks continue across the Sumy region in the northeast, which is close to the Russian border. Ukrainian military reported more than 80 impacts on Tuesday morning. It's not clear why the Russians are targeting border villages with such intense fire. Meantime, Russian missiles damaged railway lines close to uh, the Polish border. Local military officials say the attack happened near the town of Yavoriv, which is home to a large military base. There are no reports of casualties. Ukraine says its combat mission in Mariupol is over, with commanders at the massive Azovstal steelworks ordered to save the lives of their personnel. More than 260 people left the plant on Monday. Many of them are wounded and were taken to areas controlled by Russian troops. A Ukrainian official says they'll be brought home as a part of an exchange. Some Ukrainian forces remain at the plant and efforts are underway to get them out. The commander of the Azov Regiment defending the steelworks had this message earlier. This plan should evenly balance the task at hand with the preservation of life and health of personnel. Perhaps that's why war is called an art and not a science. And the task here is to preserve the maximum amount of personnel. CNN correspondent Melissa Bell is in Kyiv for us. Melissa, with the Ukrainian military saying that their combat mission in Mariupol is over, the city has now fallen to the Russians. Clearly, uh, militarily, this is bad news uh, for Ukraine, as you say, Alison, because this last redoubt, this last bastion of Ukrainian resistance had been holding out and had become such a symbol of that resistance more globally, sort of embodying that sense of Ukraine uh, trying to hold on. So clearly it's a blow and there's been a really uh, interesting difference between the sort of language we've been getting out from uh, here in Kyiv and the language that's been coming uh, from Moscow. Clearly uh, what's happened and what is underway are fairly tense and difficult negotiations as we understand it, to try and secure some kind of exchange to allow those who've been evacuated so far from the plant to be handed over to Ukrainian authorities. Now, more about the people in question. We don't know exactly how many have been evacuated. We don't know exactly, as we've just been hearing, how many remain. Uh, but we understand that of those that have been evacuated, 53 are severely wounded and in need of immediate medical attention, and 211 are in much better shape. Now, bear in mind that over the course of the last few days, because communications with inside the plant had become so patchy and so difficult, even for the family of those inside, what we'd been learning is uh, in a fairly patchy way of the conditions that had been severely deteriorating. So several hundred fighters had found themselves inside that steelworks, some of them amputated, some of them limbless, uh, but with no more medical supplies, no means of getting any kind of pain relief and dwindling food supplies. What the families have been telling us over the course of the weekend is that they essentially had about a week of food left. So that is how desperate the situation had become. The preferred solution from the point of view of both Ukrainian authorities and the families of those inside had been some kind of exchange mediated either by Turkey or China. There had been these desperate appeals from the families of those inside. That has not happened. Instead, uh, these fighters are now in the hands of uh, Russian uh, forces 
uh, certainly in Russian-controlled parts of Ukraine, and it is, we understand, negotiations towards, with a view towards some sort of prisoner exchange. If that happens, if those fighters are handed over to Ukrainian forces, it would be, Alison, the biggest prisoner swap that we've seen since the war began. But again, negotiations still underway, and as we understand, uh, they're difficult and tense, and as President Zelensky reminded uh, everyone in a television address yesterday, what is needed at this stage is both delicacy and time. Alison. Melissa, strategically, how significant is this for Russia? How will taking this steel plant allow Russia to maybe gain an even bigger foothold? Well, I think if you just look at a map of where Mariupol lies and remember the uh, scenes from earlier in the conflict, the strategic importance that it had uh, for those Russian-controlled parts uh, of Ukraine, for Moscow as its sort, uh, to eke out some kind of territorial victory uh, from this conflict over the course of now nearly the last three months, uh, you get a sense of, of, of what they can claim to have achieved uh, as a result of Mariupol uh, falling. It is strategic for them, of course, because it is a port city there on the Black Sea. Uh, it, they can claim it as something uh, that they'd been uh, hoping to achieve uh, and to get strategically from the start. And as a result of winning it, perhaps claim that they have achieved at least one of their aims in this conflict. And I think that's something of a first as well. So clearly a defeat for uh, Kiev. And this is important, again, when you look at the language on the side of the Russians over the course of the last 12 hours or so, since we've understood that these evacuations have begun, they've been talking about surrender. They've been talking about the fact that these uh, these fighters will be uh, kept in, circ in conditions that respect the conventions, therefore alluding to them as prisoners of war. Uh, Ukraine, Kiev, for their part, have been talking much more about the fact that they need their heroes back alive and that it is just about bringing uh, their men and women home. Alison. Okay, Melissa. Melissa Bell live for us in Kyiv. Thanks so much. Ukraine says an airstrike near the city of Odessa has destroyed buildings and damaged tourist infrastructure. Odessa is Ukraine's largest black seaport, making it a target for repeated Russian attacks. Sarah Seidner has more. The remains of freshly bombed buildings, a hotel and homes reduced to dust. The result of the latest Russian missile attack in the Odessa region that has experienced strike after strike on places people live, work and visit. This is Russia's attempt to terrorize a target it desperately wants to possess. Tell me what the strategic importance is of Odessa. Odessa is a strategic city. This is the seagate of our country, he says. This is a city of legend. It's home to Ukraine's largest Black Sea port, used both commercially and militarily. Russia has already attacked its oil refinery. If Putin's forces were to take the Odessa region, Ukraine's entire Black Sea coast would be controlled by Russia. The mayor of Odessa bristles at the idea. Ukraine today is a maritime power. It will be a completely different state without access to the sea, without transport logistics, he says. We and our armed forces will do everything to prevent the enemy from entering. But the ties to the enemy run deep, historically and financially. Before the war, Russian tourists helped this Ukrainian seaside city thrive. Ideal. Russians really liked our cuisine, our shops here, the sea, architecture, and there were no problems. 
Oleksandr Babich is a historian who also owns a tour guide company. He says citizens of Odessa speak Russian more than they speak Ukrainian. Pro-Russian politicians were voted into office regularly. The mayor was once friendly with Russia. He himself spoke to us in Russian. Were you pro-Russian before and changed? I want to say that I have always had pro-Odessa views, he says, but I love and respect the history of my city where I was born. Everywhere you look in this city is a reminder of its Russian history. There are statues of Alexander Pushkin, considered Russia's greatest poet, and monuments to the conqueror of this land, Russian Empress Catherine the Great. Her sculpture used to be guarded and kept pristine. Now it's soiled and a fresh Ukrainian flag flies on it. There has been a long fight over whether to remove these symbols of imperialism in Odessa. There is social demand saying we need to get rid of these symbols, he says. Not everyone agrees. Odessa writer and poet Paul Makarov says the monuments should stand. The attitude was positive. We appreciate and respect Catherine. Today's events should in no way affect our attitude towards her. And there is this problem. If we remove the monument to Catherine, we need to rename the square, he says. It was for a time named after Karl Marx, for a while named after Hitler, then again Karl Marx, and here again after Catherine. What name should we choose? But the more Russian missiles wipe away lives here, the more fierce the argument to erase the physical reminders of its Russian past. And that was Sarah Seidner reporting. In the last hour, the Finnish parliament voted overwhelmingly in favor of joining NATO. The leaders of Sweden and Finland are meeting now in Stockholm to discuss bids by both countries to join NATO. This was Sweden's foreign minister signing the application to join the group. Russia has said any expansion of the bloc would provoke retaliatory measures. The Swedish prime minister was clear in her aims when she spoke earlier today. The best thing for the security of Sweden and the security of the Swedish people is to join NATO and to do it together with Finland. And in the past few minutes, we've heard that the U.S. president will welcome the leaders of both Sweden and Finland to the White House on Thursday to discuss that NATO bid. Authorities in Beijing are tightening restrictions on movement even further as efforts to eliminate COVID-19 continue. Officials say anyone who wants to enter a residential compound must show an up-to-date negative COVID test result. Already, the government's strict zero-COVID policies have hit China's economy hard and are deepening global supply chain issues. Selena Wang joins us live now with Beijing with more. Selena, what's the latest? Well, Allison, China's uncompromising zero-COVID strategy has dealt a massive blow to the country's economy, and that's sending shockwaves across the global economy on two levels. First of all, this has absolutely crushed retail sales in China. That means Chinese consumers are contributing less to global demand than on the supply chain side. These lockdowns are worsening global supply chain woes and inflationary pressures that are already stressed by the war in Ukraine. And unfortunately, these lockdowns are not going away anytime soon. Even though the world wants to move on from COVID, China's lockdowns are not making that possible. When the world's factory shuts down, it ripples around the globe. China's COVID lockdowns are jamming ports, choking off supply chains, increasing costs for companies. That leaves American and global consumers waiting longer to get their goods and paying more for them. 
it is going to be a painful time on prices from goods that come into America from China. And that's a lot of goods. Shanghai, China's manufacturing and financial powerhouse, now a ghost town. Unused factories have been turned into quarantine centers. In this one at the outskirts of Shanghai, medical trash bags are used to protect their beds from the rain. Some offices now makeshift hospitals. The world's largest container port in Shanghai has been running at about half its capacity for more than a month. One in five container ships are now stuck at ports worldwide, according to Windward, and about 28% of the backlog is coming from China. Shipments from China to the U.S. are taking 74 days longer than usual, according to the Royal Bank of Canada, with no end to the delays in sight. The orders will take a lot longer. If you thought it was bad in 2021, it's going to get worse in 2022. At least 31 cities in China are under full or partial lockdown, impacting up to 214 million people. American companies from Apple to Amazon, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, and General Electric have blamed China's lockdowns for squeezing earnings. Foxconn, a major Apple supplier, temporarily halted production at its Shenzhen factory for a few days in March. Pegatron, an iPhone assembler, suspended operations in Shanghai and Quinsun plants in April. CEO Tim Cook said last month that China's lockdowns, along with the global chip shortage, could reduce quarterly sales by as much as $8 billion. But for small businesses, this is make or break it. My last order that I shipped to the United States took about four to five months. We've went over a month without making like any money as a business. We've also lost money from people wanting to place orders and not be able to ship them. I'm terrified. I'm I'm literally I'm I'm terrified that that black shades could be over. Some factories have remained open by putting workers in a bubble with staff working and living in the factory. Social media videos show workers at Apple and Tesla supplier Quanta jumping over factory gates. A mass of workers protesting COVID prevention measures in the factory, underscoring how hard it is to keep factories open. For decades, relying on China has kept prices for American consumers low. Now that might be changing. There'll be short-term and long-term decoupling, things like zero COVID that could knock you over. So you've got to move some production out of China. China's leadership is doubling down on its zero COVID strategy, despite the devastating impact on the country's economy. And a slowdown in China will be felt around the world. We're seeing China's economic activity collapsing under the weight of these lockdowns. It's also spooking global investors and multinational corporations. According to the American Chamber of Commerce in China, more than half of American companies in China have already reduced their revenue projections for 2022. The big concern is that there is just no end in sight to these harsh and unpredictable measures because the pressure on these local officials across China, Allison, is to keep COVID cases at zero, no matter the cost to the economy. Economy, and no matter the knock-on effects that has for the rest of the world, Selena, I know you've been living this. You've been under lockdown. Now you're out. How does it feel? Well, Allison, I went from a 21-day strict quarantine to entering a city, the capital, that's under partial lockdown. It is an absolute ghost town where I am right now, and 
exiting that 21 day quarantine was surreal. Every single item that left that facility was disinfected. As you can see in that video, even the cardboard boxes, disinfectant being sprayed everywhere. And when I exited my quarantine hotel in Quinbing, China, I realized there was a steel fence and barrier surrounding the entire hotel. A worker in a hazmat suit drove me to the Quinbing airport and Allison at the airport I was escorted around the airport because I was still considered high risk since I had come from overseas 21 days before. When I got on that airplane, got off at Beijing, the first thing I did here in Beijing was get a COVID test. We are COVID tested daily here. I'm currently living in what's considered a high risk area, China's largest district, Taoyang, and all non-essential businesses here are closed. You cannot get a taxi. Subway system is closed. It is completely quiet here. I used to live in Beijing and it is unrecognizable being back here when it is so so quiet but officials here they're avoiding from calling this a citywide lockdown they want to show that in beijing they've got things under control it's not going to spiral out of control like it did in shanghai but really more and more activity every day is being restricted and controlled here allison well i'm glad that you are our eyes and ears selena wang thanks so much North Korea has mobilized its army and more than 10,000 health workers to distribute COVID-19 medicines and trace infections. The isolated country is battling its first publicly acknowledged outbreak of the virus. Officials say well over a million people have fallen ill with a fever, but only around 170 have been acknowledged as COVID-19. They say 56 people have died. The World Health Organization warns the virus could spread fast in a country which has no vaccination program and has declined international help. These are the stories making headlines around the world. U.S. President Joe Biden is traveling to Buffalo, New York, to console families who lost loved ones in a mass shooting on Saturday. The White House says he will also speak with first responders and leaders of the predominantly black community where a white gunman killed 10 people. Authorities say they're investigating the attack as a racially motivated shooting. Hezbollah and its allies have lost their parliamentary majority in Lebanon's general election. Reformist groups made gains at the expense of the Iranian-backed party. The election was the first in Lebanon since nationwide protests in 2019, a reaction to the country's economic collapse. Coming up, little crises all over the world. Economist Mohamed El-Aryan joins us to discuss the consequences of surging inflation. Plus, Elon Musk setting a condition for his Twitter purchase to go forward. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stock futures are all in the green with the tech-heavy Nasdaq futures up about 2%. Retail sales rose almost 1% last month, showing no signs of demand letting up despite high inflation. In Asia, stocks closed up, with the Hang Seng jumping more than 3%. Hopes are rising that Shanghai will gradually reopen businesses. The city has reported no COVID case outside of its quarantine facilities for the third day in a row. Meantime, oil prices are pushing further into triple-digit territory. This comes after both Brent and WTI jumped about thir- uh, 3% yesterday. Joining us now, Mohamed El-Aryan. He's the chief economic advisor for Allianz and president of Queen's College at Cambridge University. Great to have you on the show. So glad you could make it. Thank you, Allison. 
And I want to start with the I word because that's all we're talking about. So uh, let's continue talking about it. I I want to know how concerned you are that inflation has been running too hot for too long and why lots of people are coming out of the woodwork to say, including you, uh, that the Fed really doesn't seem to have a handle on it. And so what's it going to take for the Fed to get control of this? So I've been concerned for a long time, as you know, Allison, for two primary reasons. One is that this particular inflation hits the poorest segments of our society particularly hard. It's another great unequalizer, and we've had quite a few already. So there's a very important social aspect to it. And then there's a very important economic and financial aspect to it, which is that inflation by itself that is high and persistent can destabilize an already wobbly economy and can add to financial instability. And therefore, we all look to the Federal Reserve, and unfortunately, the Federal Reserve has been very late in recognizing this inflation and in doing something about it. So a lot of people are starting to worry in a major way about a policy mistake that adds to the other challenges facing the global economy. What does the Fed have to do that it's not doing? Three things. First, restore its credibility in terms of telling us why it got its inflation call so wrong for so long and how has it improved its forecasting ability. The ECB has done that. Um, The Fed has not. Second, be much more open about the situation we're in. Look to Andrew Bailey of the Bank of England, the governor there, who has been brutally honest. And that's the role of a technocrat to tell politicians what the situation is. And then thirdly, to move with determination to contain inflation expectations. All these things are possible and they've been moving that way, but moving too slowly given what's happening on the ground. And you think if the Fed does those three things, we'll see inflation abate more, abate at least a little bit? We would. Um, I don't. I think the fact that we've lost so much time is problematic. So we no longer have the first best solution, what people call a soft landing, where you control inflation without sacrificing growth and employment. I think there will be some pain, um, unfortunately. You know, central banking is about time, skill Mm -hmm. and luck. And unfortunately, the Fed has lost a lot of time already. You've written a couple of op-eds recently uh, about the risks that are hitting the global economy, including the impact of the dollar's rapid rise, the fallout from the war in Ukraine. And you talk about little fires everywhere. Talk us through what you mean by that and why it's so important to put those fires out. So when we look at the global economy, we tend to focus on the big fire. And the big fire is how the Ukraine war is adding to our inflation concerns, our supply chains concern, to high oil prices, high food prices, and we are focusing on that. Meanwhile, that big fire has started lots of small fires in the developing world. And if we're not careful, these small fires can come together into something that really undermines the global economy in a major way. If you're sitting right now in a developing economy, your policy is already exhausted by the battle against COVID. And now you're looking at higher energy prices, higher food prices, a stronger dollar, slowing global economy, and you just feel exhausted. You don't have the resilience of a rich country. And that's why it's really important to take steps now 
to make sure that these little fires don't burn uncontrollably. How much of a threat is stagflation? It's the baseline, unfortunately, for the global economy. Um, that's the big change over the next six months. Stagflation used to be a risk. It is now the baseline, lower growth, high inflation. And the risk is now a recession. And we get a recession if you get a major policy mistake or if you get a major market accident. So we, this is something we really need to avoid right now. And what are your chances of seeing a recession? Obviously, you're putting your, your bets, it sounds like, more on stagflation. But why are you, less, uh, why are you seeing less of a chance of a, of a recession? So it depends where, where you're talking about. For the global economy as a whole, I would put it low. I would put it at 20%. If you're in Europe, it's higher. It's 50% plus. If you're in the U.S., it's actually lower than it is for the global economy. So we also are, look, are seeing a lot of dispersion in different countries' outlook. Okay. Fantastic to get your comments today, Mohammed Al-Aryan. Um, given us a lot to think about. Mohammed Al-Aryan, president of Queens College at Cambridge University. Thanks again. Thank you. Next up, Elon Musk adding fuel to the fire in his public row with Twitter's chief. Now he says no takeover without hard data on fake accounts. Welcome back. I'm Allison Kosick in New York. Stocks look like they are starting higher. Uh, U.S. retail sales rose in April for the fourth straight month, even amid rising inflation. Shares of Citigroup are jumping after Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway took about a $3 billion stake in the bank. Meantime, United Airlines is up after the company raised its revenue forecast for the current quarter, predicting the busiest summer travel season since before the pandemic. Elon Musk is once again airing out his business via tweet. This time, Musk says his Twitter takeover is on hold until he gets hard proof of how many fake accounts are on the platform. Yesterday, Twitter CEO uh, Parag Agrawal posted a lengthy uh, thread alleging just 5% of active users are spam bots. Musk responded ever so formally with a poop emoji. Ooh, Christine Romans, this is getting down and dirty. The poop emoji, it says a lot there. <laughs> Listen, we're enjoying uh, reading his Twitter feed, but, you know, there are real investors involved in this. So let's keep that in mind. And then the other thing I want to know about is this uh, bot count. Is it just an excuse that Elon Musk is using or is there something really significant to what he's talking about? So there are some analysts and people who co- cover the company today who are saying that perhaps, as one said, uh, he's got cold feet, right? The value of his own company has declined since he made this offer and uh, the whole, you know, the whole playing field in terms of uh, the economy and the international scenario has really changed here. So maybe he just has cold feet or maybe he's trying to drive down uh, the price, uh, the purchase price, or maybe he just got bored with this. I mean, look, this is Elon Musk we're talking about, right, who uses poop emojis when he's talking about a very serious multi-billion dollar acquisition. For its part, Twitter says it is committed to completing the transaction on the agreed price and terms as promptly as practicable. Uh, Elon Musk, without providing any evidence, says 20 to 90 percent of the traffic on Twitter are bots. You saw the CEO of the company uh, very clearly laying out what their metrics are here. But it, it's a fight over over bots that may or may not be maybe some sort of cover for him backing out. He would have to pay a, uh, a breakup fee, right, of a billion dollars. But clearly, Tesla shares are down 27% so far this year. So Elon Musk not 
He doesn't have quite as much money as he did when he started this whole process, but he still has an awful lot of money. I will say, and, I, and, and I'm assuming you agree with me here, Allison, it is so unusual to see details like this uh, tossed about, riffed about on social media. You're very right to point out the real, true uh, people who are affected here. Those are shareholders in Twitter and in Tesla, quite frankly, whose investments move when uh, Elon Musk riffs. It's something that has been um, at the forefront. The SEC has watched this and has actually uh, chastised, sanctioned uh, Elon Musk in the past. We'll see if they say anything about this one. Yeah, and I've been asking if the SEC is going to step in since, uh, you know, he started tweeting about this. We have yet to really see any action there. Yeah. Um, is there a deadline to this or is this uh, this back and forth on Twitter, this, these negotiations uh, in public, is this all going to just go on endlessly? He says he cannot move forward until there's clarity on the number of bots here. So now um, I guess this means the ball is back into Twitter's court. Although yesterday you pointed out the CEO had a lengthy post explaining uh, sort of their, you know, algorithm, if you will, not quite the right word, but for how uh, they decide, you know, they, they measure the bots on their on their site. Uh, maybe the two sides can talk about this, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to just wait and see. I just think it's never a dull moment when Elon Musk is concerned. And when Elon Musk is concerned using Twitter to talk about Twitter, it's just, it's, you, you couldn't write this stuff. I know. I, I have to admit, I'm, I am enjoying it. Sorry, not sorry, you know. <laughs> Christine Roman, CNN's You're chief welcome. business correspondent. Thanks so much. You're welcome. A disappointing first quarter profit sending Walmart shares lower at the moment. Uh, the company also slashed its profit outlook for the year, blaming rising costs. Meantime, Home Depot shares are up following better than expected quarterly earnings. Paula Monica joins us now. These were interesting uh, to read uh, the earnings I'm talking about with Walmart. Let's get to these first. Uh, You know, Walmart's uh, bottom line getting hit by things like, you know, inflation, supply chain issues and overstaffing. Yeah, it is interesting to see that Walmart did, uh, you know, say overstaffing was an issue. I think the bigger problems, Allison, for Walmart are clearly that inflation is taking a bite out of consumer paychecks. We've seen it with rising energy prices, the you know the soaring cost to refill your car uh, at uh, the gas station. If you are uh, still uh, driving a gas guzzler and are not a, an Elon Musk Tesla aficionado, so clearly that is a problem for Walmart. And I think the company is you know nervous about the outlook because inflation could continue to hurt consumer demand. But we're obviously not seeing that in the housing market. I think that middle class consumers, more affluent consumers that have homes that they're looking to spruce up are obviously still happy to head to the Home Depot and buy all those supplies they need for home improvement projects. What did Home Depot get right here? I think Home Depot is still benefiting from the fact that this is an extremely resilient housing market. I think it'll be very interesting to see whether or not their top rival Lowe's also reports strong numbers when they uh, give earnings out tomorrow morning. So I think Home Depot is in the right place at the right time. We keep waiting for the housing market to really cool off, but there is a lot of pent-up demand, people wanting to buy new homes. And there aren't that many new homes on the market because of 
the building problems that we've had in this country, uh, both a worker shortage as well as you know, soaring commodities costs that have made it difficult for builders as well. So there's a lot of people just chasing few existing homes that are on the market, and that's good news for Home Depot. And we learned that retail sales numbers um, show that the consumer is still holding up despite inflation. Yeah, I mean, the Walmart numbers could be a bit of an anomaly. It'll be interesting to see what Target says when they report uh, their results uh, you know, tomorrow as well. But you're right, Allison. Overall, retail sales, including car sales, have been pretty strong. Uh, I think that if we are going to be heading into a recession, numbers like this really make it difficult to say that a recession is coming soon. It could be maybe a 2023 or 2024 type story, but it's starting to look less likely that a big downturn is coming in 2022 when you have retail sales numbers like this and a still pretty healthy uh, job market with wages going up and unemployment being low. Yeah. All right, Paula Monica, great to see you. Thanks for your analysis. Still to come, helping Ukrainians with their mental health. I'll be speaking with a Ukrainian business owner about how she's supporting not just her employees, but many others in Ukraine, too. Stay with us. One young Ukrainian entrepreneur is using mental health and fitness to help Ukrainians during the war. 29-year-old Victoria Rieba is the founder and CEO of the digital health coaching website Better Me. The company has donated $40,000 to the Come Back Alive Foundation, which supports the Ukrainian army and is providing Ukrainians with free access to its mental health app. Better Me also launched the Creating Freedom Within set, a leggings and bra set in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. 50% of the profits from the set will be donated to UNICEF. Victoria Riepa, founder of Better Me, joins us now. Great to have you on the show. Um, let so me start nice with. Nice to see you too. So your company actually pivoted as the war in Ukraine has continued. Talk us through how your company is helping the war effort. So first of all, uh, I understood as a young entrepreneur, as all of our revenue uh, come from United States or Europe. So first of all, I need to support all the workplaces because in my company now working more than 200 people and I need to support their salary and then of course expand my businesses as a lot of uh, level of unemployment in Ukraine we now need to provide new workplaces it's the first part and of course we donate a lot uh, to Ukraine army and uh, also uh, create new all of our application free for Ukrainian to support mental and physical health, uh, create uh, fairy tales support special for Ukrainian children and uh, help a new program uh, to cope with uh, mental panic attack and etc. And of course, from our audience from Europe and uh, United States, we launch new uh, apparel, which is uh, yellow blue, like this, for sport and support Ukrainians, uh, sample for fighting of our independence. Mm-hmm. 
I know this is very personal for you to keep your business alive and to contribute to the war effort. I know conflict isn't new to you. You are a Ukrainian. You're from the Donbass region. You had a home there and then you had a home in Kyiv. Talk us uh, talk about what happened to you and how your experiences impacted the growth of your company. Uh, of course, my life was turned upside down in 2014 when Russia first put military pressure on Ukraine and my whole region of uh, Donbass in the east was seized by Russian military army. In 2014, I just get uh, my baccalaureate degree and uh, I understood uh, that in my university dormitory uh, was uh, Ukraine not Ukrainian, but Russian soldiers. So I packed all my belongings in 2014 uh, under the watch of soldiers. And I understood that uh, in when I start, uh, we began to see Russian separatist troops uh, on the street and hear gunfire near our university dorms. Uh, so uh, then I moved to Kiev and started business and finance in Kiev School of Economics, I get my master's degree, then I go to the Procter & Gamble as financial analyst, but uh, having struggled with my weight as a teenager, I dreamed of starting a business to help organize diets and exercise routines. In 2016, Better Me was established. Now we are taking care of the physical and mental health of more than 100 million people worldwide. And our goal is to help create gradual changes in the mind and body, improving the overall quality of life and uh, with workouts, nutrition, tracking, and mental health, of course. Better Me is one-stop shop solution for fit body and mind. And our main goal is to create products that serves everyone. And one of our key values is inclusion and diversity. Well, it certainly seems like you're doing some great things. And I know that you're a, a big champion for Ukrainian businesses and, and a real um, example of how to adapt and change uh, through wartime. Um, I certainly wish you all the best, Victoria Riepa, founder of Better Me. Thanks so much for your time. Two more major brands, McDonald's and Renault, are pulling out of Russia over Putin's war in Ukraine. Both companies were a symbol of Russia's integration into the West following the lifting of the Iron Curtain. Now their exits may herald a return to isolation and the economic pain that came with it. CNN's Claire Sebastian reports. Though often unreliable and always boxy, the Lada in the 1970s was a potent symbol of the Soviet Union's economic self-reliance. By 2022, a majority stake in the brand now owned by Renault, it was a symbol of Russia's global integration. That integration now unravelling because of the war in Ukraine and Western sanctions. Renault has announced it's selling its stake in Lada maker Avtovaz to a Russian state research institute, though with an option to buy it back within six years. Avtovaz announced in March it would have to redesign some of its cars to make do without foreign parts. Initially, that will mean no special features like anti-lock brake systems, according to one expert. And that's just the beginning. If sanctions uh, will be with us in future, 
we will have not uh, new cars. We will be with uh, just only used cars, in my opinion. And it's not just the car industry in reverse. Metals and mining will go to chemical production, paper, textiles, even foods. Every industry is now uh, either cutting their production by half or at least looking for the new ways to import and new ways to export. Westernizing the economy was one of the hallmarks of Vladimir Putin's Russia. In the wake of the chaos and confusion of the 1990s, this policy helped bring prosperity, hope and a real taste of something new. Now shutters and plastic sheets barely obscuring the remains of what was. Even McDonald's, which opened its first restaurant in Russia in 1990, says it's now starting the process of selling its business and, quote, de-arching its restaurants. Putin himself has played down the idea that his war and the resulting sanctions have undone 30 years of progress. The Soviet Union lived under sanctions, he said in March, and achieved colossal success. Rhetoric designed to strengthen his grip on power as he prepares Russia for a potentially painful economic transition. The economy will adapt to the new situation. If we can't anchor one ship, we'll try another. If we can't go to one country, we'll go to a third country. You can't buy it here, we'll buy it in a fourth country. In the Soviet Union and the decade that followed its collapse, economic isolation meant regular shortages of consumer goods and food, queuing for things a part of life. So far, Russia is not seeing this on a wide scale. But experts say it will if the war drags on. How much of a mess is this going to be, do you think? I think this is the worst crisis that most people in Russia are going to experience in their recent history. So we invented the time machine, and it is the pain of the 90s, but the other way, we're going towards darkness. The Cold War didn't just cement the Soviet Union's isolation, it also required ever-increasing defense spending, the true scale of which only emerged in its final years. Russia's hot war in Ukraine could deal a similar double economic blow. Claire Sebastian, CNN, London. After the break, keep your eyes on the skies. For the first time in decades, the U.S. holds a public hearing on UFOs. At the movies, the idea of UFOs and flying saucers plays on our fear of the unknown. Just like this scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind with police chasing mysterious flying objects. Now a panel of the U.S. House of Representatives is holding a congressional hearing on UFOs in public for the first time in 50 years. Hey, I think, dude. That's not an LNS, though, is it? It's not. It is Okay, what you're seeing there is a real UFO encounter. A year ago, a U.S. intelligence report examined 144 reports of unidentified aerial phenomena since 2004 and could only explain one of them. Kristen Fisher reports. Seven years after Navy pilots spotted this unexplained object off the Atlantic coast, top Pentagon officials will be grilled by members of a House Intelligence Subcommittee. The first public hearing on UFOs or UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, in more than half a century. For far too long, this issue wasn't even taken very seriously. It was essentially relegated to science fiction. But in a very real sense, uh, UAPs present a very real national security risk and the Intelligence Committee 
has responsibility to investigate. The hearing comes almost a year after the director of national intelligence released a highly anticipated report which examined 144 reports of UAPs but identified only a single one, which turned out to be a deflated balloon. Quote, the others remain unexplained. The report also documents 11 instances in which pilots reported near misses with a UAP. This is not tinfoil hats and, you know, conversations of Ellis being on the mothership. Luis Elizondo is the former director of a Pentagon program that investigated UAPs, and he's been pushing for more transparency ever since he left in 2017. This is a very serious national security issue. Something is in our skies. It has been there for quite some time, and we're just now having the conversation publicly about it. My God! UFOs first hit the American public's radar about 70 years ago pushing Pentagon officials to try to explain the unexplainable. I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. In the 1960s, then-Congressman Gerald Ford asked Congress to investigate, leading to the last public hearings on UFOs. Quote, I believe the American people are entitled to a more thorough explanation than has been given to them by the Air Force. But the Air Force investigation, known as Project Blue Book, concluded that UFOs were not extraterrestrial, nor did they pose a threat to our national security. Now, another congressman, Andre Carson, is pushing for similar answers. I believe it's important that they work to declassify some of this knowledge so the American people can, can, can effectively understand what's happening. these objects that caught the attention of trained Navy pilots be part of a top-secret U.S. program? Could they be coming from a foreign adversary or somewhere else? <laughs> Whatever they are, the intelligence report concedes a handful of UAPs appear to demonstrate advanced technology, some without discernible means of propulsion. The speeds that they're exhibiting as well as the flight characteristics, uh, there's no platform or really an energy source that I'm aware of that could allow something to stay in the air uh, as long as these objects were. The only thing certain is that they exist. The big question is, whose is it? And where is it from? And what are the intentions? And what are the full capabilities? And is there something we can learn from it? And finally, Ukraine won the Eurovision Song Contest at the weekend, over the weekend, and on Monday, the Kaluz Orchestra arrived back home to a hero's welcome. They were greeted at the border by servicemen and women. The band's frontman, who wrote the winning song, Stefania, as a tribute to his mother, says he plans to sell the trophy and go on tour to raise money for the war effort. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Eleni Giocos is next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.